Man, it's good to see all of you guys here this morning. I'm, I'm excited about uh, this new series. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, I'm a little bit nervous about today. Because uh, if you haven't heard, uh, we're going to talk about sex today. Uh, I think Pastor Quentin mentioned that a few times uh, already, and, and so we, we have designed this to be a, a very open and very honest, not just today, but the whole series as, as, we, as we dive into some of these things that, that, from my opinion, quite honestly, the church has, has probably fallen a little short of how much it should have been talked about. And, and that's something that, that I experienced in, in my growing up years and, and even into my, my adult years. And I mean, we just want to be that church that that's too scared or too uncomfortable to talk about some of the things that are maybe a bit more controversial. And if, if you're in here today and you've still got your kids with you, it's probably because you think, well, this is church. How bad could it be? And that's just proof that you don't know me very well. Uh, because I just, I just feel like that if, if we're really going to get to the root of issues that, that, we, that we combat as followers of Christ, if we're really going to push back against some of the things that the world is teaching us and some of the influences that we have uh, pressed upon us as we go through our day-to-day lives, Monday through Saturday, that, that we have to be honest in here on Sundays about what's going to take place out there Monday through Saturday. And that for us to pull punches and for us to sugarcoat and for us to try to find quirky, cheesy Christian ways to reword things, um, sometimes it it, it loses the brunt of the impact and and therefore some of the the impact that we need to feel in order to to understand how how dangerous and how how, uh, severe some of the the impacts of these things are uh, on our lives. And so um, I wanted to start out this today um, just kind of painting a picture for something that I think all of us already know. And that is that we are becoming a much more sexually permissive culture now than we have in decades and decades and decades past. And I, was, I did a lot of research this week, and I got a bunch of stats and a few quotes and some things that I'm going to read, from some from some scholarly journals, um, some from some not-so-well theologians like Britney Spears and Beyonce. Uh, we'll get to those in just a minute. But, but I, was, I was telling my Connect group this week, because we met, we met on Thursdays, and I was telling them, I was like, man, this is the week of all weeks that I don't want anybody looking at my Google search history, <laughs> right? Because as I've prepared for this sermon, a lot of the things that are on my computer right now, I've had to be super, super, super careful about what I click or don't click as I was trying to do some of the research, because I wasn't just getting the scholarly articles, I was getting some of the, the less scholarly uh, opportunities to click places as, as well. And so what I wanted to do is just kind of give us a feel for, for where we are as a culture. And so in thinking about culture, I started to think about all the, all the media influences that, that, that we have access to and all the things that impact us. And so I started with movies. And in my opinion, over the last several years, many years maybe, there's been this shift from what's allowed you know, when you go to the movie. And we've got all these ratings. We've got the R and the PG-13 and the PG and the G and... And so I assumed, here's the assumption that I made. The assumption that I made was that something had to change in the standard. That the, the, the Motion Picture Association of America at some point had to say, okay, look, I know that, that you know, we used to say that that was R-rated, but let's change now, for, let's change the standards for, for PG-13 and PG to allow more. I assumed that it was the Motion Picture Association of America that had made changes to the rules that govern uh, what movie gets an R rating and what movie gets a PG-13 and what gets PG and so on and so forth. I was wrong. I was wrong. The standards for what is allowed in motion pictures in the United States hasn't changed or haven't changed since 1996. 
That's over 20 years ago. But here's what I learned. Those ratings are not actually determined by the Motion Picture Association of America. They are determined by parents. That the Motion Picture Association of America brings in a group of parents to watch a film before they give it a rating. And then the rating, by which it, the, the rating that it is given comes by the decision of this, this kind of panel of parents that come in and view the movie. And so it's always, and it has been for the, its entire existence, it's subjective. It's based on what parents think. Which means that though the standards haven't changed, the culture has. And that what used to be absurd, and there's no way I'm letting my kid watch that 20 years ago, has now changed. And it's become okay. Parents feel, well, I watched stuff like that when I was a kid, and I didn't turn out too bad. And that's pretty, we'll talk about some of that logic a little bit later too. But here, I found this uh, just kind of a case in point. Anybody... It's been several years ago now. Anybody see the movie The Santa Claus? Tom, Tom, Tim Allen, that guy, right? Remember him? All right, anybody see The Santa Claus 2? All right, it came out like several years after the first one, right? Because it's a sequel, and that's how sequels work if you weren't familiar. Um, the first one was rated PG-13. The second one, with almost exactly similar content as far as what was allowed and not into allowed, was pg so just in the span from the time that the Santa Claus, the first one came out and the sequel came out, what was considered PG-13 when the first one came out is now considered PG. There, there's been a shift that has taken place in our standards for what is allowed for our kids to watch. I also found out that if a particular producer of a movie, whether it be the company or the producer or whoever, doesn't like the rating that their movie has given, was given, that they can go and lobby the Motion Picture Association of America to change their rating, even if they refuse to change content. Which means, uh, the, the, the movie that, that I saw this happen with, uh, that the, the article that I was reading pointed out was the movie Titanic, which was originally given an R rating because Kate Winslet's boobies show up on the screen at some point. If you've seen the movie, maybe you shouldn't. Um, but it was originally given an R rating because, that, because of that imagery that was going to be depicted on the screen. And they lobbied the motion picture because of, because of how much money they spent on the movie. That was their justification. We've spent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to produce this movie. Can we, can we not get it to PG-13 so that more people are allowed to see it? And they were given permission to change it from R to PG-13, which is why your teenage boy could go and see Kate Winslet's boobies without parental guidance. That's right. I said boobies. We told you. I was, it's it's going to get worse. Just hang on. You've been warned. All right. So after I looked at movies, I changed my attention just to try and further understand where we are as a culture to, to radio. And, and I felt like uh, picking on rap music would have just been low-hanging fruit. Like, like every, everybody knows that's terrible. Uh, so I decided to look to the, to the pop genre, and I found uh, two sets of lyrics that I'll share with you this morning. My grandmothers are here this morning. Grandmas, cover your ears. Uh, but, but I found this lyric from, from Britney Spears, one of her songs. Hang on for this. We're going to put Britney Spears' lyrics on the screen at church. One, two, three. Not only you and me got 180 degrees and I'm caught in between. Counting one, two, three, Peter, Paul, and Mary 
getting down with 3P everybody loves. Now, if you need help deciphering that, I'll say it this way. Apparently, for Brittany, three isn't a crowd. So, so, so Beyonce, apparently listening to Brittany, said, Brittany, I see you, and I'll raise you one. And went with these lyrics. Can you eat my Skittles? It's the sweetest in the middle. Pink is the flavor. Solve the riddle. If you need help with a riddle, <laughs> ask your neighbor. All right, hey, they can help you figure that out. So, so, so movies, radio, even, even the ads that we see on television. I found this ad for Gucci and their new um, fragrance, Guilty. I don't know what that smells like, but I don't think I want to wear it. You see, what's permissible today, so much more, so much worse, and so much different than what I remember as a kid growing up and what I had access to. And I'm fearful for what it means for us as a culture because I know the outcomes. And it's not just my opinion and and so many like me. But there's science to back it up. Uh, I found this from, a, from an article uh, from Behavioral Science. And it says, in the nationally representative general social survey, U.S. adults in 2000, um, in 2000 to 2012 versus the 1970s and 80s had more sexual partners, were more likely to have had sex with a casual date or pickup or an acquaintance, and were more accepting of most non-marital sex Premarital sex, teen sex, same sex, sexual activity, but not extramarital sex, so at least adultery is still off the table. The percentage who believed premarital sex among adults was not wrong at all was 29% in the 1970s, 42% in the 1980s and 90s, 49% in the 2000s, and 58% between 2010 and 2012. Mixed effects. Analyses separating time period, generation, birth cohort, and age showed that the trend toward greater sexual permissiveness was primarily due to generation. Now, you probably know if you've been, well, you're in the South, you know this, you've heard this. There's churches everywhere yelling at people about things like this. But what you probably know to be true is that this idea of sexual permissiveness is contrary to what God has to say on the matter. It's not what God desires for us. You see, when God designed sex, and can we just just pause right there? God came up with the idea. God is not against sex. Our church, not against sex. Me personally, not against sex. I'm kind of a fan. But there was a time where it didn't exist at all. And God said, oh, I've got a great idea. And then he came up with this thing and he designed it to be the most intimate connection between a husband and a wife so that they could better enjoy and connect with one another. That, that God came up with this idea. 
And so what I want to do, I want to kind of break the remainder of my time into, into two pretty distinct sections, at least in my own mind. And I want to talk first logically, right? So even here's what I mean when I say logically. If you're not a Jesus person, if you're not a, like a church person, somebody kind of dragged you here, or you just came to kind of check this thing out all together, and you don't really believe any of the stuff that the Bible says or whatever, can we just talk logically a minute about this design that God has set in place? That, that God has designed sex to be between a man and a woman, saved for marriage, and that once, it, once they enter into marriage so that they can enjoy it for the rest of their time together as a husband and wife. That is God's design. One man, one woman together for eternity or for as long as they both shall live. Right? That's how you hear it at weddings. No sex before that. No sex with other people after that or during that. That's God's design. When you get, and we had this conversation just a couple of weeks ago, when you get outside of God's design for things, it makes life more difficult. And some of you know this to be so very true. The first way that sex outside of marriage or sex before marriage makes things more difficult is it creates a measure of comparison between you and your spouse. Now, my wife and I, one of the, we, we were both able, I say able, by the grace of God for me, not so much for her, she's much more holy than me. By the grace of God for me and by really great upbringing and <laughs> like a higher set of morals for her, um, my wife and I waited until we were married for both of us to have sex. We are the only partner that each other have ever enjoyed, which means, which means that I am the greatest lover my wife has ever known. <laughs> I don't know what that says. I just know that it's true. I'm the best she's ever had. I, lo I love being able to say that. And I'm the best she's ever had. It, yeah, and she's, and, she's, and she's the best I've ever had. That's what I was trying to say. You get it. Yeah, I'm not nervous at all. Uh, but marriage is hard as it is. Every, all of them, every marriage is difficult. It takes a lot of work. You're already trying to figure out how to do life with another person. And anything that you can remove off of that to make that much more easier is going to result in a healthier and better relationship for the remainder of your life. And when your spouse has other people to compare you to, it's just one more thing that can create distance. You know, the two things that married people argue about the most are money and sex. And if we can remove the things that create potential for arguments in our marriage, it just creates better relationships all the way around. That's why God designed it that way. When sex before marriage results in a baby, if that couple ends up married, or even if they don't, both of them now have a kid. And as you're trying to figure out life with another person, now you've got a third, very demanding, very selfish person in the mix. So as you are trying to figure out how to do life with your spouse, now you have to try and figure out to do life with your spouse and another person. And it just complicates things. It makes them more different. It doesn't mean that it's not possible. It doesn't mean that it can't be done. But it just means that when we get outside of God's design for how sex and marriage and love and relationships are supposed to work, that it stacks the deck against us. It makes it more difficult than it was supposed to be. Could it be that God just simply desired to set you up to have the best healthiest, most loving and intimate relationship possible if you do things his way. 
God, God wants that for you. He's not against sex. He's for you. That's why he designed it the way that he did. Another contributing factor to some unhealthy sexual relationships as it pertains to, to both married couples and those before is the increasing use of pornography. It was part of my past, so I know I can relate to some of the issues and things that arise when there has been pornography use um, inside of a romantic relationship. And the studies back it up. I, I found this pretty interesting that pornography now contributes to, scientists believe, uh, increasing amounts of uh, ED, erectile dysfunction, in young men prior to marriage. That is having negative impacts on, on men younger and younger and younger and younger. Whereas it used to be that only men over 40 and later in life had issues with ED. Now it's making it into the 18 to 21 year olds because of pornography use. That pornography is the number one contributing factor to the increase in um, ED among young men. I found this article again from the Behavioral Science website. It said, since then, evidence has mounted that internet pornography may be a factor in the rapid surge of surge in rates of sexual dysfunction. Nearly 6 out of 10 visitors seeking help, help on the prominent uh, medhelp.org ED forum who mentioned their ages were younger than 25. In that analysis, 8 years of posts and comments among words commonly linked with the mental aspect of ED, porn appeared most frequent by far. In a 2015 study on high school seniors found that internet pornography use frequently, frequency sorry, correlated with low sexual desire of those who consume internet pornography more than once a week, 16% high school seniors, 16% reported low sexual desire. When's the last time you met a high school senior boy with low sexual desire? But it's increasing. Compared with 0% in non-consumers, and 6% for those who consume less than once a week. Another 2015 study of men, average age 41 and a half, seeking treatment for hypersexuality who masturbated, typically with very frequent pornography use, seven or more hours per week, found that 71% had sexual dysfunctions. 54%. Of 16 to 21-year-old Canadian males now report sexual problems, problem with orgasm, low libido, and most commonly erectile dysfunction, 27%. Those percentages are higher than middle-aged men. This means that even, even our teenagers, before they can get out of high school, are creating issues that they're... they're They're having issues that are going to affect them once they get married. They're not even out of school yet. I found another article. It's the last one I'll mention. It said that pornography, assuming it doesn't cause ED, shortens the length of a sexual episode to the average length of how long you self-gratify. And the average porn video is under four minutes. It makes you a... Listen... This is, this is not just for young men. This is for all men. If you participate, all men, yeah, men. If you participate in the use of pornography, you ready? It makes you a bad lover. This isn't Jesus stuff. This isn't Bible stuff. This is logical, practical stuff. 
men, I'll talk to the men specifically because we're the only ones that have ED. Could have ED. Porn makes you worse in bed, men. I don't need another incentive. I got all the Jesus stuff in the world, and that's still a, that's a, that's a seller for me. That would be enough. But there, there's more to it than just the practical, logical, scientific stuff. Because God has a lot to say on the matter as well. We can talk all day about the practical, but, but I want to focus on, on the mental, emotional, spiritual side of what God has to say about sexuality also because this, this is probably more dangerous, more hurtful, and more harmful than, than the, the logical, practical, physical side of things. Because the truth of the matter is this, that sex is not just physical. If you want to write that down, that's going to be a, a major framework for the rest of my time this morning. Sex is not just physical. It's spiritual, emotional, and mental. And we know this intuitive. We know this, and this is why. Because we know that when we, we see it all the time, when kids, when kids, little kids, younger kids, when kids are sexually abused, it affects them later in life when they're able to connect the dots and start to put it all together. We know. We've all heard the stories of kids that were abused when they were, when they were very little, and it affects them into their adult years and long beyond their childhood. You want to know why? Because sex isn't just physical. It messes in our mind, and Paul is going to explain that to us and explain why in just a moment. Physical abuse is twice as likely to be reported as rape. You want to know why? Because people are more ashamed when they've been raped than when they've been physically beat up. Because there's a level of shame that comes with it because sex isn't just physical. It's something in our mind. It, it, it messes with the chemistry in our brains when we've been sexually mistreated. Most people's greatest regret and hardest kept secret is always sexual. When people come to the office and they sit down across from the, my desk and they say, Pastor Brown, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody ever before. It's almost always something sexually related. These are our hardest kept and deepest secrets. And for a lot of us, our greatest regret is tied to something that was sexual. And here's why. It's because sex was created to produce intimacy with another person. God relates it to the type of intimacy that he desires for us to have with him. The kind of level of connection that God wants us to have with him. He uses the word to be known. God's to, to know us. God wants to know us. It uses the same word in talking about sex as he does about our relationship with him. That he wants it to be that close and that connected. It was designed to create intimacy between two people. And when we use it for something other than the purpose of creating intimacy, it is misused and therefore hurtful and harmful to us. If you're looking for a definition of intimacy, it's really easy. Here it is. Ready? Intimacy is to know and be fully Known. That's what it means to be intimate, to know fully and to be fully known. And when we are intimate with our spouse, it creates a full-on, passionate, fearless connection to another person. That's what it means to be intimate, which is why Paul gave us this warning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Hold on, time out. At other places in Scripture, when Paul talks about sin and temptation, he says, 
Resist or fight temptation. Fight against temptation. Resist the devil. Push back. Dig your heels in. Fight back against temptation. When it comes to sexual immorality, what does Paul say? Run away. Don't stay and fight. You're going to lose. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins. Here's what that means. Paul is putting sexual sin in a category all its own. Not because God hates it more but because of how it damages the offender and the offendee. Tracking? God doesn't hate sexual sin more, but it's still different. All other sins, Paul says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. It's not that God hates sexual sin more. It just has a different impact on the person who participates in it, and this same powerful agent that can bond and strengthen a marriage has equal power to do harm and destroy. There is no sin like sexual sin when it comes to the ongoing and lasting impact. So Paul tells us to flee, run away from sexual immorality. Just a couple of verses before he, he explains the nature of it. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. And, and, and the pushback will be, yeah, but, but nobody's doing any uniting here. It's just sex. It's just Physical, it's just sex. But the word that Paul here uses for, for uniting, it's, it's the same word that would mean something for us like, like jute, like glue. The joining together, a permanent connection. Gluing things together, never intended to be separated again. Paul is saying that you only think like that because you don't understand how sex really works. You don't understand the lasting impact that it has on your mind. And what erodes intimacy in marriage are some myths that we believe about sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage. And most of, the, most of them have to do with the belief that it's just physical. So let me give you two myths, two truths, and then a little bit of parenting advice, right? Let's, we'll, do, we'll do some work with parents. So myth number one, myth number one is this. The sexual behavior is a matter of preference. Like, all right, Brian, like I know like maybe the Bible talks about it, but I mean, you do whatever you want to do, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Like, whether or not I do or don't participate in sexual behavior or sex outside of marriage, like, if I want to do it, that's good for me, and whatever's good for you, that's good for you. It's not true. It's not a matter of preference. It's not like art, where I like one kind of art and you like a different kind of art. It's not a matter of preference, because here's the truth. The unhealthy sexual behaviors have predictable outcomes, and we just looked at a lot of them in some of the statistics that I gave you at the beginning half of the message. Sexual, unhealthy sexual behaviors have predictable outcomes. They're tied to things like divorce and abuse and sexual dysfunction, all of those things. It makes life more difficult for you. Unhealthy sexual behaviors have predictable outcomes. It's more like dieting. When you eat badly, you're going to end up unhealthy. When you participate in unhealthy sexual behavior, you're going to end up sexually unhealthy have predictable outcomes. Myth number two, practice makes perfect. Here's the belief. Well, 
I, uh, I don't want to look stupid. So I'm going to have sex before marriage so that when I get married, I'm, I'm a better lover to my spouse when I get married because I've already been around the block a few times. I've got some experience. Now I'm, I'm better at it. Practice makes perfect. Now, that's not true either. That's not true either. As a matter of fact, this is the truth. Romance in marriage is fueled by exclusivity. I remember prior to, to Aaron and I getting married, um, for whatever reason, it seemed like a good idea in my mind to let my marine buddies know that both Aaron and I were virgins. And they had uh, pretty uh, expected uh, responses to that truth that Aaron and I had never been with anybody before. And this was, the, this was their complaint. Yeah, Brian, but what happens if you get married and it's bad sex, then you're going to be stuck having bad sex. Like you, you and Aaron should at least do it once before you get married so that you know if it's good or not. Because, man, if you get married and then what if you're stuck in bad sex for the rest of your life? This was my response. When you're not having any sex, all sex is good sex. I don't have to worry about it. I don't know good sex or bad sex. I just know it with my wife and it's awesome. Could it be that God designed it that way? So you'd never have anything to compare your spouse to. I'm not, please, I'm not bragging about me, but I love knowing that I am the only one that will ever know her the way that I know her. Nobody has ever known her like that. No one has ever known me the way that my wife knows me intimately. Her and my doctor, right? Like this, that's it. <laughs> I got a joke that I'm <laughs> that's not a that's never. Nope. I'll forgo the humor for, for, for reverence, I suppose. Romance and marriage is fueled. By exclusivity. See, every one of us, when we decide to get married, are going to have a story to tell our spouse about our sexual past. Here's a version of the story. Um, I was on spring break. I met this guy. And he was so cute. And so I, I lost my virginity, which isn't really true because we never really lose it. We give it away, but whatever. And then... You know, I got into college, and I was part of a, of a sorority or a fraternity, and guys, sex was just the way that we did things back then. And so yeah, I had lots of, lots, of, lots of partners then because it was just fun and free, and it was, just, it was just sex. It was no big deal. But now I'm getting married to you, and I really love you, and so I'll only be, fa- I'll only be faithful to you for the rest of our lives. That's, that's a story. Here's a better one. And my, my mom and dad made me go to church. You know, some dude up there, and he was trying to be funny, and he read us a bunch of statistics, and he talked a lot about sex. And I, I began to believe that day that, that sex was more than just physical, and so I, I stopped having sex with everybody else. And since then, I've been waiting on you. Because I wanted to give you the best parts of me when we got married, and so, so I've waited. 
maybe you had sex before then or, or not, but, but I made the decision that day that I was going to live as purely as possible and as sexually morally as possible until the day that I got married so that I could remove as many things and make our marriage as exclusive as possible because I was waiting for you even before I knew you. And that's a good story. That's a better story. So for those of you who aren't currently married, here's what you have to do. You have to determine the story that you want to tell. You have to decide right now to determine the type of story that you want to be able to tell your spouse on the day that you get married. And then you have to live in such a way to be able to tell that story. You see, waiting to have sex is not, a, it's not, it's not so much a sacrifice as it is an investment. You know what an investment is? An investment is, is, is buying into or paying into something now so that I can experience something better later. That's what it means to wait. That's what it looks like to wait, to save yourself, to not have sex before marriage. It's, an investing, it's investing in your future marriage now, you have to determine the type of story that you want to tell. Now, there's a lot of us married folk in the room. What does this message mean for us? Well, firstly, for some of you, you've probably gotten things a little bit out of order. That there is a design that God had and has for your life, for your marriage, for your sexuality... And you've gotten things a little bit out of order. Maybe something like today helps explain some of, the, some of the tensions that you feel in your marriage because you understand now that sex was never just physical. And some of the, the issues that you and your spouse are having right now as it pertains to, to, to sex with one another might very well stem from some sin in your past or in your current. What, what are you going to do to change it? You have an opportunity right now to make the decision to commit. Do you know that studies have shown that eight months pornography-free begin to reverse the effects of erectile dysfunction? Men, there you go. There's some, there's some food for thought. There's some fodder for discussion, right? Knock it off, man. Go, go be a better lover to your spouse. You got the opportunity. Because... because it's, Pornography changes the way that you think. If you had a lot of partners before, before you got married and you can't figure out why your spouse feels numb and cold to you, maybe it's because they're trying to measure up to some view of who they think you've been with or how, how they're wondering how they stack up and how it all works. Man, have that conversation. We just have the conversation. Talk it out. Figure it out. Let's, start, let's begin. There's, the truth will set you free. Find some light and start working towards that. Be honest. Be open. Have this conversation. Secondly, most of the couples I know here have children. And if you don't, I would assume that one day if you're a married couple, you desire to have children. Parents, let's talk for just a moment about how you lead your kids. Here's a pervasive parenting thought that, that I've yet to wrap my head around completely. Well, I did it and I turned out okay. I did it, I can't have the conversation with them because I did the same thing when I was their age. 
I feel like a hypocrite to go and tell my kids that they can't when I did. Makes me hypocritical. It does. You're right. It makes you a hypocrite. It also makes you a really good parent to have the conversation. I'm running out of time. Actually, I'm way over. I'm over time already. Two instances in my life. Two twice. Two two twice. (laughs) Twice in my lifetime, I have operated a vehicle under the influence of alcohol. Twice. If I apply the same logic to my kids driving drunk behind the wheel as as some do to talking to their kids about what is and isn't permissible sexually, then while I did it, I should let them drive drunk too. Doesn't make any sense. Go go be a good parent. Go lead your kids. You're still the parent. They don't, they, it's going to affect their brains. You got to take control. You got to, you got to, you got to lead your kids. You got to have the conversation. It's awkward and it's weird. And I, I got an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old. We're not, we're not having many of the talks yet. We've had some. I'm not looking forward to the talks as the dad. I'm trying to figure out how to approach it, you know, unemotionally. And I'm, I'm already practicing and preparing how that conversation is going to go. And I'm just hoping my wife handles it. <laughs> but, but she shouldn't, not by herself. Because I, w- I want to be able to talk openly and honestly about the impact, some of the stuff that we talked about today, some of the things that Paul said and the scripture has to say about sex and sexuality when it comes to my kids. See, for all of us in the room, unmarried, married, parents, not parents, every, every life is a story. For those of you who aren't married yet, you get to determine the type of story you want to be able to tell your spouse so you don't have to lie. But for all of us, all of our lives are stories. And every story has chapters. Some of you are still reading the old ones. You're still, re- still reliving some of the pain and some of the things that went wrong and some of the things that happened and some of the ways that you fell short and some of the ways that you sinned and some of the ways that, that are now impacting your marriage. Some of you are still reading the, the old chapters. You have an opportunity today Understanding now about the, both the logical and practical impacts of sexual immorality and what scripture has to say about how it affects your mind. You have an opportunity today to put a stake in the ground, start writing a new chapter. You can, you can, you can change how the story ends. But it takes a commitment today to, to, to having the difficult conversations and to live according to the design that God has set according to his word. Let's pray together. Father, today I know that at times it's been funny. At times it's been awkward. Father, probably at times it's been hard to hear. But God, wherever this message lands with, with each of us today, and God, I pray that we would all walk out with, with this understanding. God, you want what's best for us. And for some of us, we've gotten outside of that best. Maybe we're even dealing with some of the consequences from some of the ways that we've, we've gotten it wrong. But Lord, we, we sang about it. Pastor Jonah talked about it. God, today is an opportunity for healing for fresh starts, for new direction, 
for new or renewed commitments to living according to the way that you've designed us to live and to interact with other people. So, Father, if we've been hurt, damaged, or impacted in some way as a result of either our own or someone else's sexual immorality, God, would you just bring healing where there is hurt, where there's shame, where there's disappointment, where there are old scars? God, would you restore what's been broken? Give us a new start, a new chapter, a new way to think about our sexuality, God, in a way that honors and pleases you. We thank you, God, that we know that you'll forgive us because of the sacrifice of your son and the debt that he paid on our behalf. God, it's in his name we pray. Amen.